Job. We are in chapter 9 listening to what started as Job's response to Bildad and then very quickly since everything Bildad said was useless Job sort of pivots and talks to God as he did in his response to Eliphaz and what Job has said that he wanted is a hearing he, he wants a courtroom scene where he can stand before God and plead his case and be justified not that he is blameless not sort of ontological permanent eternal justification but justification in this circumstance my friends say this is happening to me because I deserve it because of something I have done and Job knows that is not true and what he wants is to be in this courtroom where he could make that case and where God would hear him and where seeing the evidence God would admit Job you're right you are righteous this is not because of something that you have done. But he went through earlier in, in the first part of chapter 9, he went through how that's just not possible. God is too big. He's incomprehensible. He's too mighty. He's invisible. There's all these attributes of God that make it so that Job is not going to get the hearing that he's looking for. And where we finished out last week was verses 14 to 26, where Job sort of spirals in response to that. If I'm not going to get this hearing, if I can't get this hearing, why can't I just die? What, what good could ever come to me? Nothing matters. It all ends up in the same place. He has no hope. He has no faith that through perseverance, there will be sun at the end of this tunnel or light at the end of this darkness. But we made the important distinction between Job's heart of faith, what Job actually believes and knows to be true about God, and Job's feelings and description in his circumstances. And this darkness, this hopelessness, doesn't come from his heart of faith. It comes from his evaluation of his circumstances. And so we talked about how, you know, as, as people that endeavor to be comforters, we have to be careful in situations like that. We have to be able to listen to which part of a person is speaking. And if it's their feelings out of their circumstances, if it's, if it's their experience in the moment speaking, then they probably don't need a theological lecture teaching them things that their heart of faith already knows to be true. They need sympathy in that darkness, and they need someone who will walk with them to the sort of turn in all of those Psalms, the yet I will trust in the Lord, yet I have confidence in the Lord. And we talked about 70, Psalm 77, kind of how that, that turn often takes place in those Psalms. And so we concluded last week just by saying that God can handle this. We can bring that kind of talk to God. What gets Job's in trouble, so to speak, is, is not these cries of, of darkness and of despair and hopelessness from his heart. The Psalms are filled with those. When Job will get in trouble, so to speak, is when he will tell God, you owe me an answer for why you did what you did. Regardless of what the reason is, you owe me an answer and I will stand in judgment over whether or not that's a valid answer. That's what gets Job sideways with God. It is not this kind of talk, uh, dark as it may seem. And we need that. We need um, we talked about sort of cognitive behavioral therapy and this, I, this, this idea that we need to talk ourselves through it. When we're in that darkness, 
We have to talk ourselves through it into the light. And you're not going to talk yourself through it by just saying platitudes, by only saying the good stuff, the happy stuff, the hopeful stuff. You've got to start with the dark stuff, the what you actually feel and experience. That way, when you get to the pivot, yet, I'm not the only person who's gone something like this. I've gone through something like this before, and God was still faithful after the fact. All hope is not lost because, and, and then you actually believe that pivot. It's not just a platitude. If you skip giving voice to the darkness, then the light just becomes a platitude. And, and it's valuable then to work through that, which is why the Psalms of Lament work just that way. The Psalms of Lament are biblical cognitive behavioral therapy, talking themselves through, here's how I feel, and yet here's how I should feel if I remember and believe what is true. Job runs through his options again. Maybe there's another way out of this. Maybe I can't ever get my trial. Maybe there's something else that could help me here. Matt, can you read 9, 27 to 31? There's two alternative options in here. See if you can hear them. If I say... I will forget my complaint. I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. All right, what are the two options? What was the first one you heard? He can't get his day in court, so what could he do instead? Pretend! Turn that frown upside down, mister. Pretend it's all going fine. And as soon as he says it out loud, I can't bring myself to do this. This is not the moment for fake smiles. You you meet a lot of Christian people sometimes, and, and this is not picking on the particular phrase. It's sometimes the mentality behind the phrase it's actually the financial guy, Dave Ramsey, who popularized it. When somebody says, how are you doing? And you're supposed to say, better than I deserve. And that is factually true and creates a pretty punchable face, right? <laughs> of, yes, we're all doing better than we deserve, which is eternity in the pit of hell. Now, how are you doing? Terrible. My grandmother and my friend's dad died, right? How, how is better than I deserve? Uh, a helpful answer for either one of us in that situation. Uh, so no, Job will have no part in that sort of playing pretend that is very popular in the church culture that I grew up in, in sort of charismatic Pentecostal circles, where uh, because you sort of can speak things into existence and because you have to name it and claim it, you can't say things are bad or then they will be bad. What about the fact that they are bad? They are bad. Whether I said it or not, it's bad. Right? That's, Job has no, no patience for that. What was the second option he said in there? It's a little harder to pick up, but it was after the pretend. He talks about washing his hands. So kind of, kind of ritual purification. Yeah, whether that's penance or some sort of purification ritual or participating in some kind of worship experience. Um, demonstrate and he uses the the ritual hand washing, the purification where he would sort of demonstrate by religious activity that he is in fact 
blameless. And in some ways, this is raising it up a notch. This is, this is the equivalent of uh, not just swearing, but swearing on your grandmother's grave. Like this is the, okay, God, I said I was blameless, but now I'm even going to do this ritual purification to show you that I really am blameless. And as soon as that comes out of Job's mouth, what, he's, what does he say will happen if he makes himself clean? That God will plung him down, throw him down into filth. And that his naked body will be rolling in the filth so that his clothes won't even want anything to do with him because his body is so nasty. That's what he perceives as God would do with him right now. Uh, that that purification ritual would be as ineffective as anything else that he's tried. That brings him then back to his original option, which is, I need a hearing. I need a courtroom. I need to be justified before God. But this time he picks up on a detail that hadn't occurred to him before that could make this whole thing work. One thing different about the courtroom scene that would make a big difference. Karen, can you read 32 to 35? He is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Did you did your ears perk up a little bit? What does Job need? A mediator, arbiter. He needs an arbiter. He needs a mediator. He needs an intermediary. He cannot access God directly to plead his case because of all the things that he said before. God's too big. He's it's incomprehensible. He, he, all the reasons he can't access God directly. He says, I need an arbiter. What if there was someone who had their hand both in Job's world and in God's world? Pretty amazing, right? <laughs> this is what Job is asking for what if there were someone who could bridge this gap that Job correctly perceives based on the nature of God? Kate, First Timothy two five. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Only this is Derek Thomas. Only the presence of a mediator can help Job in his plight. One as powerful as God and one as compassionate and understanding as a true friend. Job needs a mediator, not, not because he sinned and therefore is estranged from God, though he does need a mediator on that level too, but that's not what this is about. This is not really a book about justification. He needs someone who can sympathize with his aches and pains, someone who has stood where he stood, and has full acceptance and therefore confidence and hope in the presence of God. The mediator has to be someone who both sides trust. It has to be someone who represents perfect justice and perfect peace and perfect goodwill, but also someone that Job, a, a human in his suffering, would look at and say, that person understands my suffering. That person understands my sorrow. Christ is the answer to Job's suffering. He just 
can't see it yet. But he has this little glimpse of what he needs. What I need is a mediator. And then, all of chapter 10, nope, can't happen. No such person exists. <laughs> Would be nice. No such thing. Got to move on. Um, and so then he gets a bit testy in chapter 10. And he speaks directly to God himself as if they were in the courtroom. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, push my way into this courtroom and make it happen. But it doesn't happen because what Job said before was right. God cannot be approached directly that way. Huffy, sinful humans demanding justice for their cause do not have an audience in the throne room of God. That is not how any of this works. A mediator would solve this problem. Jesus Christ, the mediator, would solve this problem. But Job sees no mediator and he demands an answer and so he proceeds with something he already knows will not work. He just spent two chapters telling us that it will not work, but he does it anyway. And why does he do it? Why, when you are deeply, deeply hurt and in pain, do you do things that you know aren't going to help? Because you're deeply hurt and in pain. (laughs) We all do it. We all do it. And we'll counsel somebody else. Now, you know that's not going to work. You know that's not going to help. You may feel better in the short term, but you're not. we're very, very good at analyzing what other people should not do in their hurt and pain. And then we do it. Because, as we've heard in the media all week this week, well, you can't just do nothing. You have to do something. Even if the something you do doesn't make anything better, even if the something ends up actually making things worse, you have to do something. And so that's what Job does. He does something. And he goes barging into the courtroom of God with hurt and anger and all these accusations. And so chapter 10 in in Ash's book, uh, Trusting God in the Darkness, that we are kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit using. Some of you, I don't know. Maybe y'all are reading it. Uh, Ash does a really good job organizing chapter 10 around four what he calls agonized questions. Job bursts into the courtroom But he really doesn't have, he has accusations, but his accusations are questions. Why are you against me? Why do you watch me? Not in the good way, but the like, why won't you watch somebody else for a while kind of way. Why did you create me? And why won't you just let me die? Those are the four questions of chapter 10. Now, I tend, that's, I think that's a good way to organize it. That's how Ash organizes it. It's not the way I organize it. I tend to view chapter 10 in light of what just happened in chapter 9 as more of a courtroom scene. Because I think that's how Job is setting it up. I think it's the context of the previous chapter. So I see it beginning with Job's demand. Renee, can you read 10 verses 1 and 2? I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. So here I am, God, and I demand the written charges. None of this innuendo from my friends that I must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. None of this continual suffering without an explanation. I want to see the indictment in writing. You will tell me what have I done. Then... He prosecutes the case. Daphne, can you read 3 through 6? Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of man, or your years as man's years? 
you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin. When people are really, really angry, I was convicted of this uh, a couple weekends ago, that I looked at somebody who was really, really angry. Somebody I didn't even know. It was a stranger, and they were just being nuts. And I had no sympathy for them. And that's pretty easy to do in a situation where somebody's being nuts in their anger. But underneath anger, maybe it's one layer deep, maybe it's 12 layers deep, is hurt. Hurt is what makes people angry. Their sense of injustice, that they're not getting what they deserve, is a reflection of a hurt, that they're getting something bad. Now, they may be delusional. They may be getting far better than they deserve. But we don't begin by judging whether somebody's hurt is, well, except in marriage, where we do begin by judging whether the other person's hurt is reasonable. But we're not supposed to begin by judging whether the other person's hurt is reasonable. They are hurt, full stop. That is an objective reality. I am sorry you are hurt. In fact, I am the one who seems to have caused this hurt. I am sorry I have caused hurt to you. You see how simple this is? Not simple. Um, So Job comes forward with this angry prosecution of God, but you hear the hurt underneath all of it, don't you? It's why, what went wrong that you're acting this way toward me? You, you made me. And then all this. Did, did, did you forget? Was there some failure? Was there some mistake? Why are things this way? Next, Job clarifies. Crystal, can you read? Uh, this is a long one. 8 through 17. Your hands fashioned in me. Yeah, sorry. Chapter 10, verse 8. Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You have clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. If I sin, you watch me. If I do and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace. And look at my affliction. And were my head lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion, and again work wonders against me. You renew your witnesses against me, and increase your vexation toward me, and you bring fresh troops against me. Like most pet owners, we personify our animals and give them personalities and voices. And I always think of this section as Job's most cat-like speech. I love you. I hate you. You are the best. You are the worst. He goes back and forth and back and forth because he remembers what he knows to be true in his heart of faith. He was knit together in his mother's womb. He's fearfully and wonderfully made. The Lord knew you before you were ever who you are today. And then he saw God's blessing for decades in his life. And he saw the goodness of God. And he he sacrificed on behalf of his children. And he had union and communion with God. And he knows all these things are true. And they come out all throughout this text. But look at my life. You just, you bring, you bring disaster and calamity at every turn. 
You send lions to hunt and to devour me. I'm being destroyed like I'm one of your enemies rather than one of your friends. And this is Job in his accusation trying to trying to clarify the facts for God in this courtroom. God, I just want to make sure you understand what's happening here. This person that you carefully made is being hunted like an animal, destroyed like an enemy. And he just he just pours it out. This 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 anger and this hurt just pours out of him. And then what happens? What does God say in response? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because you don't get an audience with God this way. You can't burst into the room without the mediator, Jesus Christ, and say this stuff to God and get a hearing and get a response. So the silence between verses 17 and 18 is what God has to say. And remember, Job knew this wasn't going to work. He spent all of chapter 9 saying this plan won't work. Then he executes the plan. He looks up, God, won't you help me? And God is silent, just like he knew he would pee. And you think, boy, Job, how dumb are you? How, how dumb are you, Job, that when you really want something from God, you know it won't work, but you kind of barter with God. God, if you would just give me this, then look how faithful I would be. Or look at this thing I would do in return. Or God, if you would just change this person, then I would be totally different. Or, oh wait, yeah, that's Job chapter 10. That's knowing something isn't going to work. You are theologically correct. It's not going to work. And then in the moment, in your pain, in your hurt, in your desperation, in your whatever, you say, hey, how about I try this? And then we get really upset when it doesn't work. God, we had a deal. You give me this green light, and I... Well, can't tell you how many red lights I've sat at because of that. (laughs) This is the best case that Job can make. It's a really good case. Lord, you made me. You made me carefully. I'm your creature. What, what, what's the deal? It's a good case. It didn't work. God is not there to hear it. You can't approach God this way. I do mean that God, God of course, hears it in his omniscience and the fact that, but, but this is not how it works with God. This, and, but then what happens? What happens after Job is faced with the silence? After verse 17. Nick, can you read 18 to 22? Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me, and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave? Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer. Before I go, and I shall not return, to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. What a, what, what a, I was trying to think of a less complicated word than juxtaposition, but that's the only word I can have in my head. We can identify with Job insofar as if the thing that you want most in life becomes truly impossible, can't change 
can't be changed. Can't happen. This is how you feel. Right? The, the relationship you'll never get back. The success or life plan that you drew up. That, I mean, my whole Major League Baseball career. <laughs> when the thing you wanted most in life cannot happen. This is how you feel. And so we really identify with Job on that level of this type of despair. But the reason I said it's a juxtaposition, the reason it's, it's odd, things seem switched, is what is the thing that Job wants most in life? The things that I named are things that can be good, relationship, success, recognition. Those could be good, but they can't be ultimate. When you make them ultimate... You, you lose them when God is gracious to you because you've made of them an idol and he will take them from you so that you will see him again. But what does Job want most in life? What were these two chapters about? He wants to die. Well, he wants to die because he thinks he can't get it. But what is the thing he thinks he can't get that makes him want to die? To stand justified before God. He wants to stand justified before God. All of chapter 9 is, if only I could have an audience with the Lord, my case would be vindicated and I would be justified. And then chapter 10 is like, well, let me look for some alternative solutions. Nope, none of those work. The only thing that will ever work for my life is to be justified. And there is no mediator, so I'm just going to burst in here and I'm going to be self-justified. I'm going to make my case. No mediator. No bridge between man and God. God, just me and you, one-on-one. I'm going to make my case, and I will be justified. And he actually does it. He goes barging into the courtroom, and he says, boom, here's my case. And God says, crickets. And Job knows. Thinks he knows. Thinks he knows. The thing that he wants most in life, which is the thing we all should want most in life, can't happen. And again, it's his circumstances speaking. It's what's happening in front of him speaking. It's not the heart of faith. The heart of faith was right. If I had a mediator, if I had someone with a hand on my shoulder and a hand on God's, somebody who was blameless enough to stand before God and was big enough, powerful enough to get a hearing with God, has to be bigger than the sea creature because God put that thing down and just right? has to be bigger. I need someone who can truly stand side by side with God as a peer and who has a hand on my shoulder, a foot in my world, and knows what it is to suffer. Because why else would that person plead my case? They have to know suffering to plead suffering. And that's what Job's heart of faith says is I need this person to exist. But he doesn't, so let me go in and be self-justified, make my own case, my righteousness, my goodness, my, my wealth, my success, my ability to be articulate, my logic, my brain, my everything. Here, God, here's my case. Here I stand. I could do no other. And then he looks around the courtroom, and it is empty. Nobody listening to the ravings of this madman. And he's hopeless. 
Again, that's why I say it's a just juxtaposition because it's we have the other problem, which is that we want most in life something other than to be justified before God. We put other things ahead of that that matter more to us. And they are not attainable in the way we're looking for. They cannot fulfill us or make us safe the way we want them to. And so we end up feeling like Job feels. It's just not possible. The thing that matters most to me in life is not possible. And for Job, the answer was, yes, it is. Jesus Christ, the mediator. And for us, it's, you want the wrong thing in life. You, you want the wrong thing out of life. What you should want most is to stand justified before God. And that is available. That is attainable. That is hope and security. That's the problem. <laughs> and it's just so interesting in the book of Job that we're dealing with somebody who's flip-flopped from us. Whereas we, we say without thinking, like, well, of course there's a mediator between God and man. Of course you can stand justified before God. Now, can we get on to the thing I really care about? And Job is like, I had all of the things you're talking about, and the only thing that matters, the only thing I want is to stand justified before God. It's not possible. And our response is totally possible. Can we get back to the better job thing? The happier marriage? The kids that are good. The, could we, you know, could we get on the stuff that matters here, Job? The things that move the needle. And that's the conversation we're having back and forth with Job in eight, nine, and ten. Questions, comments about about Bill Dad One, as I call it. We're going to hear from Bill Dad again. So this is Bill Dad One. He doesn't get any better for the record. <laughs> when he says um, that I may find a little cheer before I go, like, what do you? I can read the whole verse if you want. Go ahead and read the whole verse. While it's 20. It says, Are not my days few, then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer yeah. before I go. The leave me alone is the key there. Is Look, yeah. God, clearly death is at hand. I'm scraping wounds off with broken pottery. I'm sitting on a pile of refuse. Things are not getting better. I'm going to die very soon. Maybe you could leave me alone and just give me... 10 minutes of happiness before I die? Again, I mean, it sounds insane until you remember the time you thought it. <laughs> You're like, Lord, obviously you hate me and you want to bring destruction. I can't fight you, so just give me five minutes of peace and then you can destroy me. You're like, that's insane. Nobody says that. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Or if you haven't yet, you will. You will. You'll say... That's where our perspective is completely inward. That's right. Yeah. And it's not, the, it's not the eyes of faith or the heart of faith. And, and when we say something like that, again, back to sort of the, um, the theology in which many of us were raised, there's a big fear that, oh, you're putting your salvation at risk. You can't talk that way. You can't say that way. You can't. Are you even in Christ? You, and Satan will love to whisper that. You know, Christians don't think that kind of thing. Did you know that? Did you know that real Christians never say this kind of stuff, even in their hearts to God? You're like, yeah, but this Job fellow, uh, it's not you. You're just a faker. Faker. Right? That's what Satan does. 
I know him. We've, we've dialogued. That's what Satan does. You're such a faker. Because you can't say things like this. And what we've got to be able to talk ourselves through, and you'll almost never be able to talk this through entirely by yourself. You need a, a, a friend or two. Scripture says a, a cord of three strands is, is not easily broken. This is one of the powerful contexts for that. Is, is you need people to say, like, you know Satan's a liar, right? You know Job said this stuff. You know David said this stuff. You know, multiple authors in the Psalms said this stuff. Paul, like, Paul comes pretty close. <laughs> this is what Christians say when Satan is attacking them. Not from the heart of faith, but from the feelings of experience. And, and what we need by God's grace is for the heart of faith, which is strengthened by the two other strands that make a chord, uh, we to overwhelm the feelings of experience and to say, yeah, this does feel terrible. This is, in fact, objectively terrible. This is not God's long-term plan for me or for his church or for his world. But God says he will do this thing in me, in the church, and in the world. And so when Satan says, yeah, but you're not a part of that, it's not true. That's not true. Satan's evidence is about my behavior. Satan says you can't belong to God because look what you do and think and say. But is that what any of us put forward as our case for how we know we belong to God? If you did, you're hosed. If your case was, look, God, I think, feel, do, and say really godly things, therefore I belong to you. Yikes. What do we say? The merits of Christ. I plead the merits of Christ. <laughs> I plead that you turn away from what I think and say and do and replace it with what Christ says and thinks and does, what he objectively did and finished in his obedience up to and including the cross and the resurrection, and what he does through me. That is the merit on which I stand before God. So what, Satan, what are you talking about? That I'm a liar and a phony and a... No, I'm not. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I found one. I found the savior. And I'm righteous on his account. And so this, this drawing us back to this righteousness of Christ that is not our own and being able to argue with ourselves and with Satan that these accusations aren't true. And in that sense, can't you see Job's heart of faith, his, his actual righteousness, come forth even in these chapters even in these chapters where he's saying this stuff that you say you shouldn't say that to God I look at it and I see a heart of faith I see somebody who wants to scream and rage but then he cat like changes his mind and says yeah but God is really good God you hate me except you made me and you and everything is bad except if I had a mediator <laughs> That's, that's the heart of faith coming through. It's, it's not wrapped up in the, all of the individual words Job says. It's, it's the wrestling, which is the evidence. Satan wants to make you think that your wrestling is evidence that you're far from God. But when you look in the scriptures, that's really not what you see. You see evidence of all these spiritual giants 
wrestling as a sign that they're close with God because what I know to be true and what I experience don't match. And then they come out of that stronger and closer to God. No, not, there are exceptions, I think. I'm not 100% sure. I think Solomon is one in Ecclesiastes. I made that point. I, I don't think his heart, I don't think he has a heart of faith that perseveres. I think his reliance from the very beginning is on his own wisdom. And that's why he says, this is going to be a book of wisdom where I'm going to wisdom this thing and y'all are going to see my wisdom and it's going to get wisdomed out. And where does the book about the wisdom of Solomon end? Madness. Crazy town. That's what I think you see. Job is a book about the wisdom of God. And it starts praising Job's righteousness, not his wisdom, because Job leans on God's wisdom. And then a bunch of the stuff that Job says that comes out of his mouth is nearly identical to the stuff Solomon says. But it leads him to a totally different place. And what's the difference? The heart of faith. The heart of faith is the difference. God's wisdom versus human wisdom. What other questions do you have? Comments? These are tough chapters, but I find them very exciting chapters. Like, this is not just repetitive complaining by Job that I think sometimes it can come across as. I see. I struggle some with the thought of if you're a good Christian, sort of like uh, experience, you know, that you'll handle tragedies and hardships in your life in a better better way better way that's right and yet but, but, like, but look at the layer look at the level of his tragedy that the lord had to bring to provoke this response so does job in his spiritual maturity does he respond this way if the only thing that happens is the raiders steal his flock probably not it's, it's why we get this relentless bop, bop, bop. Everything will be destroyed and you will be left to nothing and you will long for death and can't find it. It is that level of calamity. So even for, and again, what Satan says Job will do is curse God and die. And he doesn't do that. <laughs> he doesn't curse God. And so it is an extreme situation. And it should be. It should be the case that if you are a baby in Christ, Little things drive you to something close to this. But if you are mature in Christ, if you are growing by grace, if you have some, some, some spiritual scars and some, some war wounds from history of wrestling with God, it, the little stuff doesn't provoke this. But the big stuff will bring similar questions. Maybe not as far as Job goes, because you're probably not going to get as far as Job gets, right? But suicides in our families. Um, There's no lack of spiritual maturity to have some real aggressive questioning for God and some real moments of despair in processing that. The the death of any child. The the death of, of the good people. Right? Like, of all the people in the world working right, unrighteousness and iniquity, of all the problems in the world, and we got a guy dying in a school because he's willing to lay down his life for some children. We got a teacher dying in a school because she's willing to wrap herself around the child to try to save her. Like You don't want her to die. You want her to live. Let some jerk 
some ungodly jerk die to save that kid? Uh, so yeah, it's a really good question, Matt. There's, there's, it is certainly the case that what provokes us to these types of questions and this line of thinking should be more intense over time as we grow in the faith. And that we shouldn't, apart from gigantic disaster and tragedy, have to go as far as Job does for the heart of faith to overcome and to be pulled back. But Job is a book that's showing us the outer limits of each of those. What if the worst tragedies possible came to the most righteous, humanly speaking, person possible? That sets the outer limits. Because if, even if Job stuff comes to me, I can't quite make the case Job can make of, God, I didn't do anything wrong. Well, yeah. <laughs> so Job really sets the outer boundaries. What does it look like if every extreme, everything's turned up to 11? And in our lives, it will not be so 11-ish, but the principles will hold.